I think that in the industry, what <laughs> what people found when when push came to shove, companies were paying their software bill before they were paying their rent. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam M. Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. For the next few episodes, I will share my conversations with capital allocators in the seed, venture, and private equity space. They will discuss how their capital allocation works and provide tips to entrepreneurs on how to stand out. I have with me today, Brian Henley, Managing Partner at Recurring Capital Partners. Brian has a remarkable uh, experience that uh, uh, he's, he went to school here as an undergraduate and um, he uh, started his career um, with IBM in sales. But throughout his um, experience in his career, he has been very involved in uh, mergers and acquisitions. And um, and at one company, he was involved in five acquisitions and exits. And he really became very knowledgeable of SaaS-based companies. SaaS stands for Software as a Service and the cash flow capacity of those kinds of companies. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. This is part of a series on capital allocation. And typ typically when you're thinking about SaaS companies that are trying to scale, <clears throat> they're typically talking about, you know, venture capital and seed funding and those sorts of sources. Your company focuses on providing debt to those types of companies. Uh, tell me a little bit about the history of that, how you got into it and why it's important for SaaS companies. Sure. Um, so recurring capital, we're about a six year old firm now, um, investing out of our third fund, worked with about 40 companies in the SaaS world all, all over the country, uh, including one in, in Fayetteville there. Um, and we are in the kind of growth capital um, part of the finance world. So you have seed funding, venture capital, growth capital, and then private equity. So most of the companies we work with are between five and 20 million of revenue and are looking to, to grow their customer base, but they have an established product and established um, customer base. You know, th throughout my career, what um, what I've seen is in in especially in the software space, the the business model has really changed from the beginnings of the software industry back when I was selling software at IBM many many moons ago. Um, that the industry was founded on a license maintenance model. You would create software and you would sell a um, perpetual license to that software, essentially ownership of that software to a company um, where you got most of your money up front and then you would charge a small annual maintenance fee after that. And, um, you know, 10 or so years ago, the industry 
switched over to more of a subscription model, hence uh, software as a service, where companies are essentially renting the software. And, you know, you can think about it as if you're a consumer, all of the uh, kind of monthly subscriptions you have from Netflix to Spotify. So what that's done, if, if you're a software business now, you have a lot more predictability um, of your cash flows and you're um, driven by predictability on the revenue. So now what's your revenue going to be in any quarter? It really is very predictable based on how many customers you start the quarter with minus you know how many you're going to lose in that quarter. What you find today in the software world, um, if you have a customer base that has um, some stickiness to it, which is our turn, term for, you know, are the customers going to continue using the software? If you have a, a sticky piece of software, um, there is an underlying asset there that there are a lot of acquirers of that business because you can generate a lot of cash flow out of that business. What that's doing is it allows you to retain a lot more ownership of your business um to probably someday sell that business or cash flow and dividend uh yourself versus a bunch of other investors receiving the benefits of what you build so um it, it's an interesting evolution in the capital stack of these businesses and has created you know an opportunity for a firm like ours to to be a an active source of capital for for software companies that really didn't exist um, 10 years ago. Um, but fundamentally, what, what supports our business and these software businesses, the, the thing you have to understand is businesses hate to change their software, uh, which has been true for 40 or 50 years in the history of business software. And so that, that kind of underlying um, friction of companies changing software um, allows for quite a bit of stability, which is what creates a lot of value in in these businesses. And so we're we're part of a um, source of growth capital for uh, a bunch of really interesting companies, none of which probably most of the audience would have heard of. We're not we're not financing consumer related businesses, but more fundamental back office or, um, you know, kind of vertical software uh, businesses. And, um, but, you know, it's part of what makes the uh, the world go round and part of the, the productivity that you're seeing in every industry, the digitization of every business out there. Um, doesn't matter whether it's a, a railroad business or a uh, high tech um, manufacturer every business in the world right now is is being changed by software and it's underpinned by a lot of innovation that's coming from entrepreneurs in the software world that are solving problems that used to be um, kind of managed with spreadsheets and um, you know homegrown systems and now people are building kind of custom SaaS software that's solving some very niche problems in in a lot of different industries it reminds me of that uh, one of my favorite articles in the Wall Street Journal by Mark Andreessen 
10 or 11 years ago. It was called Why Software is Eating the World. I don't know if you remember that. Pretty famous article. Um, but yeah, you see it in all industries. Um, so let me ask you a couple questions about firms. I understand you you're, you look for firms uh, with uh, recurring revenue streams like SaaS companies. Um, and I see the analogy to commercial real estate. Do you have any guidelines around firms that you will provide capital uh, debt to based on how they've been financed up to that point? Yeah, we're unusual in that, um, you know, we we don't really look to the existing investors or shareholders to to be there to provide additional capital in the future. We kind of assume that's not going to happen. Um, so really, what we look for is uh, a management team that that has a pretty big stake equity stake in the business so that they um, they would be willing to make tough decisions like cutting costs if you know we have a big recession and um, you know a lot of companies right now are kind of struggling with are we you know should we keep investing in in sales and marketing as much as we have been because are our target customers, are they going to be making purchasing decisions right now in an environment where everybody's getting conservative? You know, debt financing becomes the first money out when there's a liquidity event. Um, so the, the key is for a, for an entrepreneur or ownership team is to make sure they, they have more value than the, than the debt um, on an exit um, if, if a company is sold. Um, so, you know, the things we're looking for, as I mentioned, predictable recurring revenue, we, one of the things that really determines whether you have a software company or not is do you have high gross margins? Low gross margin businesses um, are, are more difficult to finance with debt because you have a lot fewer levers to pull on the expense side um, because you just need a lot of people to service those businesses. So we're looking for, you know, gross margins kind of in the 70% plus range, which um, most software businesses have, which gives you a lot of flexibility um, in that operating expenses are, are somewhat variable um, below that um, gross profit line. So sticky customer base, high gross margins, um, you know, in our due diligence, what we're always trying to understand is why do their, the software company's customers need this software? And is it a nice to have or a need to have? Uh, we definitely like need to have software. So, you know, you think about um, software um, to, to run payroll for a, for a business, for example, you know, a software so uh, a company that uses uh, soft, a certain set of software for payroll, they can't just say, I'm not going to do payroll. You, you've got to do payroll. Our typical structure is a four-year term loan. And so we always have to assume there's going to be a recession sometime in the next four years. So we're always looking at, okay, what happens to the customer base in a recession? 
um, for this type of business. And that that kind of makes us more conservative with regard to cyclical industries. Cyclical industries are often tied to consumer spending. It doesn't mean we wouldn't invest in a business like that. It just means we would be more conservative because we have to assume they're going to lose some revenue in, in a recession. Um, but certainly, you know, in COVID um, two years ago, it was a great proof point for the uh, stability of software. Um, there was, you know, I think that in the industry, what <laughs> what people found when when push came to shove, companies were paying their software bill before they were paying their rent um, because they couldn't run their business without their software. They learned that, hey, we can actually run our business without office space, uh, which you know was one of the big uh, shifts. But um, we, we certainly found a very stable um, uh, revenue base in, in our customers during COVID in, in a very uh, disruptive time. And, and the market we're in today is uh, pretty shaky, I would say, of a lot of customers um, are slowing purchasing decisions. But we haven't seen, you know, people not renewing their software um, because they, uh, you know, are continuing to to run their business, but they're just running them a little bit more conservatively. I know sometimes um, financiers will, with software companies, will look at, they'll take a set of customers from one year and they'll look over time to see what that set of customers does, you know, how many are you retaining? What's the change in revenue and gross profit and various things like that on that set of customers? Kind of as a measure of switching costs, uh, an indication. Exactly. Do, do you look at those kinds of things? Yeah, we, we call that cohort analysis. So yeah. you will you will look over time at, you know, you can do it monthly or quarterly um, or or annually and say, you know, from the customers they acquired in Q1 of 2020, how many of those are still here, you know, two years later? And you can kind of build these cohort graphs to see trends. Are are the customers sticking around the way they have historically? Uh, you know, we see companies all the time that they're trying to grow, so they're experimenting with new markets. So you know, not their core customer they started with, but they're they're trying some new customer verticals or or sources of customers. And you have to be careful because, you know, you can spend a lot of money going acquiring a new set of customers, but they they might not have the same need for the software and the retention will drop compared to what you had before. So that's definitely part of our analysis or anybody investing in the software space today. Um, you know, and it's not rocket science. Again, I think it's, you know, it's easier to predict these businesses now than it used to be when you were just selling the software and people could run it, you know, without really communicating with you. And now, you know, all of our companies, they're getting minute by minute usage data because they're hosting the software. So they see how many users are logging in and, and an indication of, are you going to lose a customer is, Hey, wow, they used to have 10 users a day logging in and now they've only got one. Well, 
you better you should probably go check with that customer something's going on they're not using the software as much as they did before um, so there's a lot of sophistication not just from the investor side but from the operating side of these businesses that um, is really keeping a very close tab on you know what what is the customer uh, activity and are they getting value from the software so uh and a related kind of thing that's of interest many times in these situations is, <clears throat> and there's lots of ways to measure it, but the efficiency of sales, where you take like gross part profit, say in Mart in uh, period two, minus gross profit in period one, divided by the amount spent on sales and marketing in period one, to kind of look at how efficient is that? Is that very important to you, those kinds of metrics? Sure. Um, you know, it it's a it's kind of a sister analysis to the retention side, is you have to you have to take into account what is the lifetime value of a customer, like how long on average are those customers gonna stick around? You know, there's you know, there there's reasons you lose customers. You know, uh, for example, we do a lot of software in the that companies that sell to hospitals and, you know, hospitals hate to change their software, but one hospital system acquires another hospital system and they have a different set of set of software they use. And the, the bigger acquirer is going to say, hey, you're going to use our software now. So it, it can help and hurt. You know, you can have customers to go acquire other businesses and bring them to you, but you can also lose customers. And so, um, you know, there's, um, it's important to what is the customer acquisition cost related to the lifetime value of the customers. And, you know, we, we have some companies that, that have annual contracts that are hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And we have others that are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. And, and if you're selling software to a small business, um, just by nature, you're going to lose more customers because small businesses go out of business and they get acquired more. You know, there's a lot more churn in an SMB market than there is in an enterprise market. But if you have a, an efficient customer acquisition model in that, you know, you, you have a a viral word of mouth source of new customers, you're not having to spend a lot of money, you can support a lower renewal rate. Um, but, um, and then conversely, you know, if you're selling big enterprise accounts, you have expensive salespeople and you're going to conferences and, you know, there's a lot of expense around getting enterprise customers, but they tend to be more sticky because Johnson and Johnson's not likely to get acquired, you know, next year. They're they're probably more likely to be acquiring another another company. Um, so selling to those enterprise clients is is more stable, but conversely, it's more expensive. So um, that those those things go hand in hand. You have to look at both sides of the coin. I've seen some strategies lately. I just I came across this and maybe it's been around for a while and I haven't noticed it as much, but one software service that I use to analyze something here at the university. Um, 
a few months, maybe a, a year ago, they said, look, instead of paying this monthly rate, which wasn't very high, I could buy a lifetime membership for a certain amount of money. That was an option that they gave. I took it. I think it's worth it. Um, they've continued to, you know, upgrade their features and functionality and and I really like it, you know. Um, so for me it was probably a good idea, but I I wonder about that strategy. Are you are you seeing very much of that? Well, it's it happens from time to time. Um, you know, if if you're a software company and you you want to generate cash, you can go to your customers and and offer a program like that. And essentially, you know, we kind of call that pre-selling pre the future. Um, you know, so they they get that cash today, but they have a liability which is to service you forever. So, you know, in our business, that. Um, we we have to look at that as deferred revenue. So a simpler version, which happens quite often, is hey, if you'll pay us up front for three years, we'll give you a 25% discount. So we collect three years worth of revenue today, but we owe you service for three years. So there is short-term deferred revenue, which would be uh, somebody that sells a an annual contract that you pay up front. So you pay up front for 12 months, that the next 11 months is short-term deferred revenue. But if you if you collected three years, year two and three revenue is deferred revenue um, on the balance sheet, which um, if somebody is acquiring a company or someone like ourselves is looking at the P&L of a company, um, they might, recognize that revenue um, over the next three years, but they've already collected the cash, so there's not going to be cash coming in. So you have to do an adjusted um, P&L to really factor in what are the cash flows coming in the next three years. That's what investors are really focused on. And, and by the way, the, the CFO of that company needs to be careful of, hey, you know, my revenue is going to be stable because I'm going to recognize some some kind of value of your contract over some longer period of time. But I got the cash today, which is good today, but it's not going to be there tomorrow. So uh, from a from a purchaser of software, you know, it can be a pretty good deal. But you have to understand it's it's a short term cash injection for that company that, you know, if, if they can't kind of continue to generate cash it could it could jeopardize the company in the long term so brian why would someone want to take um capital from recurring capital partners debt versus equity capital you know there's a very valid um reason to take equity capital because they have a team of operators that are going to help you grow your business. We do a little bit of that, but it's much more around, you know, the the financing side of the business, the you know, helping helping you manage cash and things like that. We don't have big enough margins to go have a staff of operating partners that are going to go um, you know, 
kind of help you grow your business. So that's a difference between equity and debt um, that I don't, you know, I don't disagree that, you know, there, there are reasons to, to raise equity capital. I'm not saying, but it's, um, you know, there's depending where you are in a business of whether you need that kind of help or not. Obviously you're trying to preserve your, your ownership of the business versus selling a piece of it. There's reasons to bring on equity investors, especially if if you have the opportunity to bring some industry expertise, you know, and and not just to help you grow your business in that industry, but also there there is expertise in how do you grow a software business? You know, when do you hire a VP of HR and when do you bring on a real CFO versus a controller? You know, there, there's an there's a science and a, uh, ex- expertise around growing software businesses. You know, it's very different running a 10 person software company versus a 75 person software company versus a 500 person software company. And there's different equity investors that have a lot of expertise at those different stages. And so like we, we work alongside, uh, firms like that all the time, and they can be very valuable. We we can be valuable on you know kind of the the financing strategy of the business of you know what are, what are the sources of cash and and you know my M and A background. I, I often helping our portfolio companies figure out when to exit, how to exit. Should you hire an investment banker? Um, you know how do you think about strategic invest buyers versus financial buyers. We do a lot of help with companies on the on the financial side of the business. See, when I thought of closing question um, is about investors in your company. You know, um, how do you find investors? What are you looking for? You know, essentially I'm running a, uh, I created this business as a startup and I had to go, you know, find investors, you know, it, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I've I've created a lot of businesses over time, and um, this one has been very satisfying because it's it's offering something investors really want, which is kind of a great risk return and not likely to lose my money. Right. But I get a good yield, and then it's it's a great. Um, uh, service for entrepreneurs of, wow, you can help me g- grow my business and get new customers, but retain ownership in, in my more ownership in my business. And so it's very satisfying to find a business that, you know, there's, there's nobody can really say, you know, that business is terrible or you're, you're hurting this business in, in exchange for growing your business. It's, it's been fun to, uh, to, to work with both the investor side and the um, the customer side for us, which is which are these entrepreneurs all over the country that you know I used to be an entrepreneur in in that sense of building building a company and um, one of the biggest satisfactions I've had um, is to have a half dozen or so of our portfolio companies have really successful exits. And the first thing the founders do who've actually made a lot of money is come back and say, Brian, can I invest in 
the next recurring capital fund because I know what you guys do and I know how thorough you are and and how little risk you took in our company because I knew I knew how much value we had in our company and um, so we've had a I call that kind of full circle of you know helping helping an entrepreneur get get to successful exit to wealth and then helping them preserve their wealth <laughs> with with our uh, uh, kind of credit fund investing. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today about recurring capital partners. Um, very interesting business um, and successful business you've created that helps um, investors and um, software as a service companies. So congratulations on this huge success. Well, thank you. And I have to tell you, you know, when I graduated high school in CrossFit, Arkansas, um, I told my dad I I wanted to go into business and um, he was uh, he graduated from the University of Arkansas chemical engineering degree and um, he kind of gave me a, a a great set of choices he said you could go to any college you want that has a Razorback as a mascot and you can <laughs> major in you can major in any engineering degree you want and so <laughs> I got an industrial engineering degree from the University of Arkansas and then uh, later got a MBA from Harvard. But um, I uh, always envied my friends who were during undergrad were studying some really interesting stuff at the business school and I was stuck, stuck, quote, in the, in the <laughs> science stuff that was not near as much fun. Well, you're getting to live it out now, so congratulations. Nice. Good talking to you, Great Brian. Great to talk to you, Matt. On behalf of the Sam and Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C.